Hey there, and welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. Our guest for today's conversation has done a lot of things in his career, but they've all been anchored around helping creatives make ideas happen. That's entrepreneur, author, and investor Scott Belsky. Following a stint on Wall Street, Scott founded the online design community and portfolio platform Behance, which would go on to be acquired by Adobe. Meanwhile, he was an angel investor in what's become a slew of household name brands, including Warby Parker, Uber, Pinterest, and Periscope. Scott joined Benchmark Capital, where he's currently a venture partner in February 2016, and today he advises companies that center at the intersection of two things, design and technology. In a chat with Intercom's Jeffrey Keating, Scott sheds light on why it's so difficult to nail what he calls the first mile of your product. The first 15 to 30 seconds of every new customer's experience of a product, they are lazy, vain, and selfish. How revisiting onboarding can help keep a growing product simple. It really comes down to allocating a certain percentage of your energy on an ongoing basis to that first mile experience. Rather than moving on from it once you think it's working, keep coming back to it, auditing it, and refining it. And why your startup just shouldn't be chasing all of its potential customers at once. When you take a step back and you start to think about where your product is now, where it's going to be in the near future, and where it's going to be in the longer term, you start to actually become a little bit more discriminate about which customers will serve your business the most. If you like what you hear want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and shoot us a rating or a review. We value your feedback and it helps bring new listeners to the show. And now let's hop into the studio with Jeffrey Keating and Scott Belsky. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Well, Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you've had a really interesting career so far. You're currently a venture partner at Benchmark Capital, but you came to that after a long career in product. So could you give us the Cliff Notes version of your career so far? Sure. Um, well, as an undergrad, I studied both design and business. So I wasn't really sure which avenue to take, um, although business always had a real pull to me. And then I um, took a job in kind of traditional business on Wall Street back in internship in 2001 and a full-time job in 2002. And realized that, okay, it's a great experience, but I, I kind of want to go back to my interest in design and the creative industry. And I was obsessed with this one problem, which was how do you organize the creative world? You know, how do you foster attribution and transparency in one of the most disorganized communities on the planet, but also an industry that really changes the quality of life for all of us? So that sort of led to the idea of Behance. And we bootstrapped for five years, were venture-backed for a couple of years, and then were acquired by Adobe in the um, end of 2012. So that was a real journey of you know, almost squeezing blood from stone at times, trying to make a business work, trying to build many things, then refine it back to core things. And then I stayed at Adobe for over three years, not only integrating Behance, um, but also helping oversee the mobile product strategy and creative cloud services. So I had a really great experience in a big company um, after Behance, which I actually really enjoyed. All the while, I've been investing in many different companies since 2010, which is what really made me say, okay, let's spend more time investing, and also let's roll up your sleeves and maybe help get a few things off the ground again. So that's kind of my mode right now. I'm spending some time investing in new companies uh, as a seed investor, as, as uh, also an extended member of the Benchmark team, and helping uh, get a couple of new companies off the ground as well. So you founded Behance and 99U, obviously, and now these companies are kind of very, very focused on helping creative people kind of get their ideas out there. So did you always identify yourself as a creative person? You know, I did. And I think that I, uh, inside, always 
said, wow, I wish my skills were better when it came to actually design and some of the things that I found interesting to me in college. I just never pursued that career path as a profession. And so I think the closest I could get to it was really helping organize designers and helping also as a leader of different now, you know, different companies or different teams, helping empower design in the process of building a business and then the process of crafting product. So I think that's become something that I feels like a perfect overlap of my interests. And, and that's why I spent so much time in it. So now I guess there's there's probably going to be plenty of designers listening to this. So, you know, given your work on, on Behance, I feel like I kind of have to ask, what makes a good portfolio for you? Good portfolio tells a story. The problem with portfolios is that if you think about it, every portfolio is a lie because every portfolio includes work that not only you did, but other people contributed to. Whether it was the photograph you used or the font you used that has a typographer who made it or an illustrator you partnered with. So every portfolio really represents a collection of people contributing, working together towards something. And so what really matters actually in a portfolio is the problem you were trying to solve what you actually did as part of that project and the story. Did you go back and forth? Would you have a few ideas at first and then you ended up picking one? I mean, that's the type of thing that helps someone determine who they want to work with as a partner is how they went through the story, how someone kind of thinks through an idea to fruition. And do you find in general designers are kind of too focused on showing the final polished elements of their design rather than the kind of like rough sketches? Yeah, I would see two kinds of things on Behance that I didn't really like. One, which is only showing the polished end or only taking little snapshots of like a drop shadow at the corner of a product that you did or something like that. And in some ways, making your work look better than it may have been because you're not willing to show the whole thing, which is another thing that I think a lot of design communities are guilty of is allowing designers to kind of show a little hint of something without really showing the full context, which is actually what really matters, because of course, design is only effective in the context of what it's being presented in. And did you ever encourage the kind of Behance community then to share those sort of earlier designs? I would, I mean, uh, we had a lot of different features over the years that help people kind of share design in real time, and also from a portfolio perspective, really share the story and have a very long, lengthy showcase of how a design came about. So do you think designers in general sort of spend too much time focusing maybe on things like the interface rather than solving the actual underlying problems? Well, I think that at best, designers are always grounded by a problem and are not taking design direction in terms of what they should be doing design-wise, but rather direction in where they're not answering or solving the problem effectively. And I think that the interface is where a lot of great problems are solved, but the other thing that designers are liable to do is borrow things that work for other products that they just like kind of put into theirs without thinking again about the context and all of the other aspects of the user's experience that need to also change to support that addition that they made from somewhere else. And so it's that's why there's no shortcuts to design. And, and that's one of the reasons why I tend to have a problem with open source you know, or crowdsourcing spec contests for design and kind of quick uh, engaging a designer in one particular part of a project without really engaging them in the whole course of the project. Because I just think that design is start to finish. You wrote in 2014, you know, which kind of probably feels like a lifetime ago, you know, that design is becoming a commodity. Now, this is something our director of design, Emmett, would, would certainly echo. So it's 2017 now. Do you think this trend has worsened? You know, I don't know if I feel that it's really becoming a commodity in the sense that I think that the competitive advantage 
for most businesses is design. And therefore, I think that bringing designers in-house, empowering designers, making sure that designers have a seat at the table in the full decision-making process, and also partnering designers with product leaders or making designers product leaders themselves, rather than having them treated as like an internal or an external agency is super important these days. And I think that bad design is becoming commoditized in the sense that it's more accessible. You can just rip someone else's piece off or you know get something done on a crowdsourcing site or something. But great design, in my, my belief, is, is more of a competitive advantage these days in technology than the actual technology. I mean, talk about commoditization. So much of a tech stack is now being commoditized. You can just roll in with a few lines of code, you know, great services for payment or for tracking or for analytics or for shipping and everything else. And so those things that used to be the competitive advantage of companies trying to change industries are now more commoditized. And now it's really about the interface itself, where you really distinguish your product or service. So it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, designers seat at the table. In the kind of companies you advise, what do you encourage designers to do with that seat at the table? I think what you have to, first of all, do is help frame the internal objectives through design. I mean, a business plan means nothing when it's tucked away in a Microsoft Word doc you know, or Google doc in text. What makes a business plan and a set of milestones come alive is when some design is applied to it. And then that plan, that strategy is then merchandised to the rest of the team in a way that they'll relate to, which is what design is all about. So that's one thing, is the internal communications being reinvigorated by a designer with a seat at the table. And then the second thing is to make sure that these endless debates about strategy and product and pricing and you know all this stuff actually starts with mock-ups. So much of a debate can just be prevented by showing something rather than everyone telling each other their opinion. And that's where designers can really thrive is making sure that people start with something visual that they can relate to, putting up straw mans that people can engage and debate around rather than these hypothetical questions. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. 
The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So I'm here with Scott Belsky, venture partner at Benchmark Capital and co-founder of Behance. So Scott, let's talk product for a bit. You wrote a great piece on Medium last year, you know, one that we would have shared around the office quite a lot. It was called Crafting the First Model of a Product. So in a nutshell, it's about the temptation of many startups to focus on, you know, existing users rather than new ones. So what exactly is the first mile and why are people tempted to overlook it? The underlying psychology that motivated me to write that, but also to think about this with a lot of the teams I work with, is that really once someone comes to your product, downloads it, signs up, joins or engages, you know, and, and follows someone that does a few key things that shows them the longer term potential of your product in their life, you're golden. I mean, that's that's all about keeping someone engaged and, you know, and, and, and building a roadmap for the coming years of features to better, you know, serve the customer and everything else. And that's actually where our teams, everyone spends the majority of their time. But that's further down the funnel from what customers go through initially, that first smile of what does the tour look like? What is the copy? What is the onboarding process like? What questions are you asking or aren't you asking? And what's the default? What do you see first? What's the first action? And how are you oriented around why you're there and what you're going to do next? And that is actually really what matters for a successful product. Because again, it's easier to get someone to give you faith in the roadmap once they're further than that. But to get that far is where most companies struggle. Now, in the ultimate irony, that first mile of the user's experience tends to be the last mile of the team's experience when it comes to building the product. It's really towards the end where people say, oh, like, what should we have our tour be? And what copies should we slap in there? And oh, like, let's just use the form fields that we think are logical. And so it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's all about that first mile. The other psychological undertone there is my conviction that in the first 15 to 30 seconds of every new customer's experience of a product, they are lazy, vain, and selfish. They're lazy in the sense that they're not willing to take time to read or learn anything. They're vain in the sense that, gosh, you know, life is short. I'm busy. If I'm going to engage in this new thing, it better make me look good. If it's an enterprise product, it better make me look good to my colleagues. If it's a personal product, it better make me look good to my friends um, or professionally online or whatever. And then selfishness is even if this product is something that helps my team be more productive or is good for the world or is good for a political movement or something else I believe in, at the end of the day, for the first 15 to 30 seconds, I want to make sure that this product solves one of my problems now. And it's one of these grounding things that we must realize as product makers, which is that we can't believe that people will have a relationship with us until they get through that 30 seconds. We can't sell them on the long-term vision or get them to invite all these people to make it worth their while. It just needs to serve them now. And so I think when you when you ground the decisions you make in the product, in that first mile of the product experience for the user, for a new user, it's just important to remember this, you know, and, and it, it, it triggers things like, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't tell them or even show them. Maybe we should just do it for them with a template, you know, with a, with a default field completed, it's little things like that that you start to think about differently. 
And so the first mile is, you know, is really successful when new users reach what you call, you know, the zone. Yep. So they're fully onboarded and, you know, really finding success within your product. Um, so once users have actually reached that zone, how do you make sure they stick around? So that's where the core features and empathy comes in. One of the mistakes that companies are liable to make at that point, when you're just kind of making sure you stay, you keep your community or your active customers engaged is you become passionate about ideas for the product as a, as a team, and then you act upon that passion, when in fact, you should be becoming more empathetic to the customers and the new modern problems that they are facing, and then be building a roadmap based on where that empathy leads you rather than where your passion leads you. It's a very important thing. And some of the most impressive teams that I've come across always have customers coming into their office. They're always shoulder to shoulder with customers working through their products, watching them use it, empathizing with the struggles and the frictions they're encountering, and acting upon those when it comes to prioritizing the roadmap. Great. And let's get into specifics. Like, Who do you think is kind of really nailing this first mile right now? Well, I certainly think that products like Instagram, you know, I've certainly figured this out, products that have proven that they can break through that you know, 500 million user ceiling. Um, but in terms of new products, um, you know, like some of the messaging products like Telegram and others have really had a very smooth onboarding. Slack, I think, is especially good at this. They even think about little things like the magic link as opposed to the password because they realize that new users, the second time they come back, they don't remember their password. But a magic link sounds great. You know, so it's, I think it's little things like that that they've done well that we can all learn from. And do you think the first mile is much different for say, consumer products to business products? Or do you think the kind of same principles really apply? The same principles definitely apply. And uh, and I think it's a, it's a mistake that still almost the entire venture capital community makes in the sense that they feel like consumer products need a certain type of investor with a certain type of sensibility. And then an enterprise product investor really needs to only focus on other things, but not really the product user experience. I disagree. These days, most of these enterprise products are being adopted from the bottoms up. They are being adopted by the teams themselves rather than like the IT people. And at the end of the day, their users also use iPhones and you know modern day social products. And they have the same level of expectation in terms of ease and access, uh, ease of use. So it's important to treat every product to some extent as a consumer product. You know, something Intercom has definitely had to deal with as we've grown is, you know, really keeping our, our product as, as simple as possible, you know, as our features and, and user base have grown. So yep. what advice do you give for startups, you know, maintaining this sort of, you know, simplicity over time? Yeah, and you guys do this quite well, too, by the way. Um, I think it's really comes down to allocating a certain percentage of your energy on an ongoing basis to that first mile experience. Rather than moving on from it once you think it's working, keep coming back to it, auditing it, and refining it. And the main reason is that new users change over time. Um, New batches of new users are different because your product may now have more credibility in the industry and you may be now engaging pragmatists, people that um, haven't had experience with your product before uh, or or your industry before uh, as much as the early adopters. And and they're going to have different expectations in that first mile. So it's important to constantly... Um, optimize that first mile. I'm a big fan of your take on the take any customer you can get adage. You know, you've written before that, you know, a startup doesn't really want all of its customers right away. So could you talk me through that? 
Sure. I think that the intuitive logic is that you want any customer you can get. And there's some truth to that. But when you take a step back and you start to think about where your product is now, where it's going to be in the near future and where it's going to be in the, in the longer term, you start to actually become a little bit more discriminate about which customers will serve your business the most. In the very beginning, you want customers that are so interested in what you're doing, they're willing to tinker through some beta and have a tremendous amount of patience. Uh, they're willing to just like test something. And those are, it's a small number of customers. And oftentimes, if you keep just your aperture on those customers themselves, you know, you will not have to explain too much. You will not have to handhold too much. These are just the right people to adopt in the early stages. The next type of customer you want is someone who's forgiving. You know, someone who might be a little less willing to tinker, but if there's bugs and stuff like that, they're forgiving. They're not going to lose all of your credibility in their eyes because of some, you know, something that's not working perfectly. And so as you start to grow beyond the beta and include more people, you want people that are forgiving, but you don't want people who are not forgiving because they'll just trash talk you as a half-baked product. And you don't want the super influential people in the industry who know everyone to be trying yet because they might tell everyone before it's really ready for full time and people who are not forgiving will join and not have a good experience. So you have willing people, then you have forgiving people. And then um, the third type of folks you want once you're really ready to have it spread and you don't need people to be forgiving anymore is the viral people. You know, these are the folks who will tell a lot of people very, very quickly. And a lot of teams make the mistake when they launch of trying to get these people right away when they should actually be getting forgiving people first before they are really ready for prime time. The viral folks will spread the word, but their reputation is at stake. And if your product is not really ready or ends up having some major problems after a viral person engages, it could actually really backfire. And so you want to be careful of that. After the viral folks have really taken their role in spreading the word and being excited about being the first person in their community to talk about a new product, I think that's the incentive for the viral person to engage. Then you want to start focusing on the lifetime value users, the people that are really going to move the needle for your business, you know, from a, from a revenue perspective. And this is where you start to think about, okay, maybe that user that comes in and checks it out and then leaves or tries it once or whatever is not as important as the person that actually engages and we can retain over time and really drive value out of. And this is where that you know, lifetime value or LTV becomes important as you think about what you're willing to spend to get these new users and you really want to therefore optimize for users that stick around and, and really reward your product, whether it's through advertising revenue or paying themselves something uh, over time. The last type of user you want to get in the very late, late stage cycle of a business is the profitable user. Sometimes when a company gets kind of older, you know, and, and very, very mature, you start firing customers that may use a ton of your resources and are not as profitable as others. And it's interesting that at that stage of a business, sometimes fewer customers paying a lot more is the goal. And uh, now the problem there, of course, is that those companies stop engaging viral people. They stop pushing you know, new, new risks in their product that people need to be forgiving of. And that's where the cycle starts all over again. And a new company can come up with a totally new offering and, and be competitive. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess for most startups and just starting out, they're probably just happy to have anyone, I guess. Is that what you find? Yeah, I think that that's the case. But I really believe that the long-term intelligent approach is to test your product with a very small number of people, even if more people want to get in, and then only actively target people that are forgiving, and then only actively target people that are viral. Because more often than not, I see companies launch before they're ready. And I see products fail, not because they weren't great ideas, but because the execution wasn't dead on yet. And that's why oftentimes the one that wins the industry is like the third or fourth to market. So finally, you know, much of your career has been spent discussing creativity and generating ideas and how to avoid, you know, what you would call the the sort of project plateau, which is, you know, in a nutshell, having so many ideas and, you know, just end up running out of steam. Is this something, you know, you still experience? Well, the project plateau is the is a reality of every journey, right? When you start on something new, energy and excitement is extraordinarily high. You're willing to take inordinate risk. You're willing to quit a job. You're willing to stay up night after night after night. And then you end up kind of falling into the doldrums of project management. Real life catches up with you, you know, and you realize, oh, goodness, like what a dreary place to be. And the greatest way to escape that feeling is just to come up with another idea and to come up with another idea. And, um, and so staying engaged in that journey, um, not abandoning the hard work for something new and novel is really critical. So, I mean, you know, that, that what I just described is something that I think that every creative, energetic person kind of struggles with is staying engaged and sticking with that project plateau rather than just escaping it with a new idea. And I, I suffer from that myself. You know, what I, what I do and what I encourage all teams to do is hack their own reward system. You know, try to find a way to trick yourself into feeling like you're making progress when you aren't yet and staying in the journey uh, long enough to start, you know, seeing the light of day. Right. So it's something you constantly kind of have to, you know, keep on top of and keep yourself in check. 100%. Cool. So I think we're out of time. So Scott, thanks a million for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.